This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for July 6th, 2018. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Nineteen sixty-eight, a year of political division, upheaval, and change. And the summer of sixty-eight was a pivot point for the country. Michael Cohen is a Boston Globe contributor and the author of the book American Maelstrom, the nineteen sixty-eight election and the politics of division. He joins the podcast this week to discuss the summer events which shaped the drama of the nineteen sixty-eight election and how it began the political discourse we see today. Michael Cohen, as you reflect 50 years ago, the summer of 1968, a pivotal period during a crucial year in American politics, what are your thoughts? Um, you know, six, summer 68, like the rest of 68, is a period of, I think, extraordinary tumult in America. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of hard to think about it now. We think today's politics seems so unstable and so confusing, and it really kind of pales next to what we had in 68. If you think about in April, you have the assassination of Martin Luther King, only days, by the way, after Lyndon Johnson announced he's not running for re-election. Um, and then, you know, two months later, the assassination of, of Robert Kennedy in Los Angeles. And I think the confluence of those events, I think, are so important to the politics of 68, because I think they convinced a lot of Americans the country was falling apart. Um, and that they sort of couldn't get their bearings on what was happening in America at that time. And I think that it did a lot to undermine the Democrats and to certainly help Richard Nixon become president in, in November, just, I think, because people decided there needs to be a change. And it's interesting, you know, before Kennedy was assassinated, um, Hubert Humphrey, who ended up being the Democratic nominee, led in a lot of the polls against Nixon. But after the assassination, those polls reversed, uh, and it was Nixon now who was in the lead. And I think the assassination and the sense that the country was just coming apart at the seams, I think, had a lot to do with um, Nixon's victory and, I think, to the period that afterward of Republican domination of the presidency. I want to come back to all of these points, but Andy West, a reporter with Mutual Broadcasting in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, just moments after Senator Kennedy declared victory, this is what it sounded like. I want to hear him really loud. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? Is it possible, ladies and gentlemen? It is possible. He has. Not only Senator Kennedy. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. And another man, a Kennedy campaign manager, and possibly shot in the head. I am right here. Rafer Johnson has a hold of a man who apparently has fired the shot. That's it, Raper. Get it. Get the gun, Raper. Okay, now hold on to the guy. Hold on to him. Hold on to him, ladies and gentlemen. Hold him. Hold him. We don't want another Oswald. As the events unfolded June of 1968, as you listen to that, your thoughts? It's extraordinary audio, and it's extraordinary to, to think about um, what that moment was like. Again, when you think about the the level of, of tumult in the country, you have obviously everything going on in Vietnam with King assassination, the riots afterward, to have something like this happen. It just, it's, it, I, I'm sure for many Americans, it, it must have been a feeling like, what's next? You know, what else can we can we put up with? Um, and I, I think one of the, the hard things about writing my book on 68 was trying to understand that feeling of just, of, of, of disorientation, you know, that that you sort of, that Americans had lost control of events. Um, and I, I think the Kennedy assassination coming so you know 
so soon after King's assassination, coming you know five years, less than five years after his brother was assassinated in Dallas. I think you know, because a lot of Americans that the, I mean, it's it sort of political violence that just became a part of American life in a way that it had never been before. Um, and I, and people compare now this period today to '68. I always sort of say you can't compare it because of the, the level of political violence. That's the big difference. It's that you see two major American political figures assassinated within a two month period. Um, we had be, I think Americans have become almost a nerd to it in some respects. You don't have that today, thankfully. When you joined us in the spring for our nine-part series on American History TV, I asked you the what-if question. Had Kennedy lived, do you think he could have been the Democratic nominee in 1968? I want to take that a little bit different in our conversation here. If Hubert Humphrey had been the Democratic nominee and Senator Kennedy had lived, do you think he would have selected him as his running mate? And if so, would that have been different in the summer and fall of 68? It's a great question. And I suspect that he he would not have, if only for the fact that Lyndon Johnson would have lost his mind if Kennedy was the vice president. I think Humphrey went to great lengths to pacify uh, Johnson to, to ensure that he wouldn't um, be an adversary, wouldn't be, ad- be adversarial toward him during the campaign. I think selecting Kennedy might have been a bridge too far for Johnson. Having said that, I think that Kennedy's assassination um, did per- crippling damage to Humphrey's campaign in the sense that um, he needed Kennedy, actually. Kennedy was not going to be the nominee of the party. He didn't have support among the delegates. You're convinced of that? I'm convinced of that. And I think if you look at the history of the time, I mean, you know, it was it was sort of accepted that Humphrey was going to be the nominee. Kennedy um, had upset the unions. He upset Southern delegates. Um, he His support had dipped as the primary season went on. The more people saw him, the less they liked him. Um, even in California, he, he barely beat McCarthy in a race that he was leading by double digits when it began. I don't think he would have had enough momentum and enough, certainly enough delegate support from the party to win the nomination. But had he survived, um, the just the threat of him being the nominee, um, the ability for him to challenge Humphrey, I think would have forced Humphrey to been more conciliatory about the war in Vietnam. And I think would have also pushed Johnson to allow Humphrey to be more conciliatory uh, in the sense I, the biggest problem that Humphrey had was getting past Johnson. You know, in the summer of 68, he develops this statement uh, talking about, a, you know, a, a bombing halt in Vietnam. It's something that, that the left wants. It's something that even a lot of the, the more hawkish Democrats were supportive of. But Johnson wouldn't agree to it, I think largely because he just didn't want he wanted to control the process and didn't want Humphrey in any way to, to differ from, from administration policy. I think if Kennedy survives, I think if he's challenging Humphrey, there's even a chance of being the nominee, I think Johnson gives Humphrey a bit more rope to, to, to distance himself from the White House and the war in Vietnam. That didn't happen, and I think it's what ended up dooming Humphrey's uh, effort in, in the fall. The speech that Hubert Humphrey gave in late September in Salt Lake City was that division between Humphrey and Johnson on Vietnam. Why didn't he do it earlier? And, and was Humphrey a weak politician when it came to Lyndon Johnson? What was his persona? You know, it's it's really a, a sort of a great tragedy. I think I think Hugh Humphrey would have been an excellent president. I think he actually had really smart political instincts. You know, I, I write about this in my book back in in the um, early of 1965. He was the one person in the White House who told Johnson that escalation in Vietnam was a mistake. A famous memo he wrote in February of 65 saying, "Don't do this. It's going to hurt us." Hurt us, hurt Johnson and Humphrey uh, politically, and hurt the Democratic Party politically. And if you read that memo today, it's extraordinarily prescient. He, he gets it exactly right, and exactly right in the sense that he 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 diagnoses properly what's going to happen with the Democratic Party, and that liberals within the party are not going to support a, a long-sale uh, war in Vietnam. 
So I think, and he also made the argument that it would undermine Johnson's domestic goals on the Gray Society. And again, he was right about that. So why didn't he do it? Why didn't he separate earlier? Partly because of the reaction to that 65 memo, because Johnson was furious about it and isolated him and and tried to uh, make, basically punished him for what he had written. And I think from that point forward, Humphrey made the decision that he had to be, uh, if you will, more Catholic than the Pope when it came to Vietnam. I mean, I think he had to be uh, absolutely Johnson's supporter in the war. And I think that idea became so ingrained in him that he had a hard time getting away from it. I think he also convinced himself, wrongly I believe, that if he if he crossed Johnson on Vietnam, that Johnson would make it harder for him to win the election. Um, he may have been right about that, but Johnson didn't help him anyway. Even though Humphrey basically endorsed administration policy on Vietnam, uh, Johnson made very little effort to help, didn't, didn't raise money for him, didn't campaign for him, in some ways undercut him um, before, right before the election um, with the peace talks with the North Vietnamese. Uh, he would have been much better off distancing himself from, from Johnson. But I think there was a strong sense among Humphrey that, that to do so was, was dangerous. And I think he chose a safer path. And maybe this is something that comes from being in politics for a long time, that you, don't, that you just think the safest the safest path is the best path and i think that's what humphrey concluded and, I, and looking back on it now he made the wrong decision the democratic convention in chicago just how disastrous was that yeah very <laughs> quite disastrous for humphrey i think it was the moment that he was already having a hard enough time as it was but i think people who watched the convention came, came away from it thinking democrats they can't even run a convention how they get around the country um, it just added to the sense of malaise in America, the sense that that uh, things were out of control, the sense that there was no order in the country, um, and so I think the violence was just another another um, you know harmful blow to to Humphrey's chances. And I think also though, you know, again, the fact that Humphrey didn't adequately make peace with the anti-war wing of the party that was the the much bigger problem, frankly. Um, you know, Gene McCarthy would eventually endorse Humphrey about a week before the election. Um, a lot of Democrats refused to support him. Some, some even suggested voting uh, for Nixon, uh, that he shouldn't vote for Humphrey, he should stay home. It just it, it ended up being a situation in which he came out of the convention so badly hurt. He had no money also. Um, and, you know, again, everywhere he went on the campaign trail was heckled by anti-war activists. Um, not until he gave that speech in Salt Lake City did things turn around. And I think if he'd given that same speech at the convention, I think he probably would have won. And yet, as you look at the popular vote, Hubert Humphrey almost won. He did almost win. I mean, that's what's so extraordinary about it. Uh, he came, I think, half a million votes he, uh, he lost by um, a few tens of thousands of votes and had switched in different states, and he would have won. Um, I think the, the sort of the, the conventional wisdom of with one more week to campaign, he might have beaten Nixon. I think that probably is true, which I think shows you two things. First of all, the country was still pretty Democratic at that time, um, but half the country registered Democratic. Uh, I think that, that you know, Humphrey had that advantage, plus he had a lot of support from traditional uh, base of Democratic support. The unions were big fans of Humphrey, and they, they came out for him in, in large numbers. I think also it was that people just didn't really like Dick Nixon. Uh, I mean, I think that's the other big thing about this. Dick Nixon began the campaign with about 43% of the vote in, in September, according to the polls. It's basically where he ended up. Uh, he didn't really convince people to vote for him. I think a lot of people didn't trust Nixon, uh, rightfully so, and I think that he was a weak candidate uh, to go into the uh, general election. And against any other Democrat in any other situation, I think he probably would have lost. We'll talk about the Republicans in just a moment, but let's focus again on the summer of 68, the Democratic Convention, courtesy of CBS News and Walter Cronkite describing the scene in Chicago. As we reported to you earlier, and this, we remind you, is not live, it is on film. Now, this happened some time ago. Uh, the demonstrators did get into the lobby of the Hilton Hotel, 
and the National Guard was called. We do not see National Guard in this scene, so I assume that this film is even longer ago than the last uh, videotape we saw. This was before, apparently, the National Guard was called. Uh, that would put it at two or two and a half hours ago. Late August 1968, CBS News and Walter Cronkite. And to go back to your book, American Maelstrom, what's fascinating is how popular Lyndon Johnson was in 1965 when he was sworn in and how quickly that dissipated among the American people as reflected in Chicago in August of 68. Yeah, that's one of the, so I think, real in- interesting parts and sort of tragedies of this is is that when, when Johnson's inaugurated in, in January 65, his, his, his full term as president, um, there's a somewhat of a consensus in the country, a liberal consensus, you know, on, certainly on domestic policy. He had just beaten Barry Goldwater, biggest electoral margin uh, in, in U.S. history. And I think there was a sense that, that there was this, again, consensus around the, sort of the goals of, of Johnson's Great Society agenda. And he pushed forward them over the next two years with extraordinary um, uh, success. Um, he just remade Amer- America, not just American politics, but American public policy with all the things he pushed forward, Medicare, Medicaid, education reform, um, obviously civil rights legislation, Voting Rights Act would come in, in the summer of 65. Um, so, but what would what would upend Johnson uh, was the war in Vietnam. I mean, it was, it was, I should say it was two parts. With the war in Vietnam, it's also that Johnson wasn't a great politician. I think people think of him as a great politician because he was so effective at corralling votes in the Senate. He was good at that, no question about it. But when it came to um, being a national politician, to convincing and Americans, inspiring Americans, he was less effective. And he was duplicitous. Um, he was dishonest. All, he didn't, wasn't honest about Vietnam at all. Um, and I think people just came to not trust him. Uh, and, and, and again, rightfully so. Um, and Vietnam became, for Johnson, his obsession to the point where I think it, it became more important than anything else in his, that he was doing as president, and, and less so for the, the war's goals itself, and more so because of what it personally meant about him. I think he had the sense that if he lost in Vietnam, or if he pulled out of Vietnam, or didn't have victory in Vietnam, that history would judge him poorly, and he wouldn't be able to recover from that um, from a legacy standpoint. And I think that obsession with winning in Vietnam, obsession with being proven right in Vietnam, overtook him. To the point where, again, you know, going back to the summer of '68, he refuses to let Humphrey distance himself from, um, from the White House and the war in Vietnam. And what ends up happening is he ends up dooming his Great Society agenda by doing that. If he helps Humphrey get get elected, Humphrey can move forward with the Great Society agenda. Instead, Nixon comes in and basically undermines it, and a succession of Republican presidents would would continue that process. Um, it's it's sort of fascinating and 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 distressing, but but Johnson seemed to put more importance on continuing his policy in Vietnam that was clearly by 68 an error and clearly wasn't wasn't working became something that seemed more important to him than his great society agenda and and again it's it's the great tragedy of johnson that um that this happened and that undermined the extraordinary domestic progress they were able to happen during his administration and michael cohen just one side note because in the book you talk about lyndon johnson's constant need of affirmation yes are we seeing that in this white house today <laughs> i mean yes uh, although again you can't really compare the two right i mean obviously johnson definitely needed validation needed affirmation uh Trump needs a, is limitless need for validation and affirmation. I, I think that the lesson was don't elect narcissists as president. I, the thing is, we always kind of do. I mean, to be a politician or a president, you have to be a little narcissistic. Um, but when you elect somebody who's an extreme narcissist like Johnson, like obviously Trump, um, it sort of doesn't end well. One more moment from that Democratic convention in Chicago. The chair of the party at the time was John Bailey, and he was interviewed about the demonstrations taking place throughout the city. 
Yes, well, there's been rather uh, large disturbances downtown, and there's uh, talk that some of these delegations are caucusing now to decide not so much to walk out tonight, but not to come back tomorrow because of what they call the police state tactics that are being uh, used around this convention hall and downtown. Well, I assume the people who uh, had charge security here, making sure that there was no uh, interruption in the convention itself. After all, this is a very serious convention. We're going to nominate the next president of the United States here. But, Mr. Bailey, the, the charge is undue, undue force being used by police and National Guardsmen. Well, I know nothing about it. As I say, I've been here in the front row with my Connecticut delegation and on the podium where I belong and where I'm going now. You're smiling as you listen to that. <laughs> Yeah, um, he may. A lot of delegates didn't know what was going on because it wasn't. They didn't. It, it ended up being uh, the violence ended up being recorded and then later um, was shown and people were watching on TV inside the convention hall. But um, the fact is that uh, what's interesting about it is that the, the reporter describes it accurately. This was actually a, a later termed a police riot by the, the Walker Commission that looked at the violence in Chicago. The police initiated the violence. They they escalated it. It's funny, you played a clip earlier of Cronkite talking about protesters being inside the Hilton Hotel. They got inside the Hilton Hotel because literally the Chicago police took, um, uh, basically used battering rams to break the windows of the, of the bar outside the Hilton Hotel, went inside, and then began beating up people who were drinking inside the hotel. It was just extraordinary levels of violence perpetrated by the police for the most part. Um, but... Most people on TV saw this um, and ended up blaming the protesters. And one of the things that was so striking about Chicago is that I think two-thirds of Americans ended up siding with the police against the protesters, which I think speaks to the, the sense that people wanted order in, in 1968. And, when, and, I, and we talk about law and order, and we talk about the law part and crime. The order part's pretty important, too. And a lot of uh, Americans just saw anti-war protesters in the worst possible light. They saw them as people who were contributing to the, the, the violence and the disorder and the tumult that was happening in the country. And so watching Chicago police beat up some long-haired hippies, I think a lot of people actually thought that was what they needed um, and that would teach them not to protest and not to you know do things they shouldn't be doing. So, And I think that's also representative of the generational clash that existed in 1968. There was certainly a younger generation, baby boomers, who were come of age in an era of affluence, um, who had certain expectations what they wanted, and they was very much different from the older generation who aged in the Great Depression, which was just happy to to have a, a job and happy to have um, economic stability. And I think that clash is a huge part of what we see in 1968. And I've mentioned late August. It's important to note that Lyndon Johnson wanted the convention timed around his birthday. It was so actually they planned his birthday, it, yes. a couple of years before uh, the 68 convention actually took place. That's right. You can see our earlier conversation about narcissism to that point. And the other thing, of course, is Johnson at the last minute thought he he might be able to be the nominee, and he tried to um, see if he had the delegates lined up in order to to push Humphrey aside and be the nominee himself, um, which which of course didn't help Humphrey at all, and also speaks just the level of disrespect that Johnson had for Humphrey at a moment when he should have been supporting the the, no, the nominee of the party. Um, he's looking for ways to possibly uh, come in on a silver horse and end up uh, being the nominee himself. Let's turn to the Republican candidate Richard Nixon, who was the nominee, and he accepted his nomination. After his defeat in 1960, here's what he said. We make history tonight, not for ourselves, but for the ages. The choice we make in 1968 will determine not only the future of America, but the future of peace and freedom in the world for the last third of the 20th century. And the question that we answer tonight, can America meet this great challenge? For a few moments, let us look at America. Let us listen to America. 
to find the answer to that question. As we look at America, we see cities enveloped in smoke and flame. We hear sirens in the night. We see Americans dying on distant battlefields abroad. We see Americans hating each other. George Romney, Nelson Rockefeller, Ronald Reagan, all potential candidates in 1968 for the nomination. Richard Nixon got the nomination. How and why? Um, divide and conquer to some extent. Uh, he was very lucky by who he faced off against Republican nomination. Um, he had on the left Nelson Rockefeller and George Romney. On the right, he had uh, Ronald Reagan. And the thing is that um, George Romney wasn't a great politician and sort of crashed and burned in, in 67. Rockefeller sort of took on the mantle of the moderate wing of the of the Republican Party. The problem is that conservatives hated Nelson Rockefeller, hated him more than they hated Lyndon Johnson. They, they, they were just, you know, he had, he had gone after Goldwater in 64. They never forgave him for that. And they were scared of the possibility he might become the nominee of the party. And so, uh, the, in that sense, Nixon played off that fear. That if you if you if you don't support me, you can get get Rockefeller. And the moderates, on the other hand, who support Rockefeller, were afraid of of Ronald Reagan running to the to the right of Nixon. And their concern was if uh, if they ended up helping Rockefeller somehow, Reagan would slip his way in and become the nominee himself. So he played off both sides. Um, you know, moderates who were afraid of Reagan. Conservatives who were afraid of Rockefeller ended up settling on Nixon, and in some, and he said this at one point that they basically tolerated him, and that's kind of how he got the nomination. By no one really loved Richard Nixon, but they saw him as as sort of the the better alternative than to to Rockefeller or Reagan, and they also saw him as somebody I think who could who could do well in November. Although ironically, I think if 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 either Rockefeller or Reagan had been the nominee, they probably would have done even better than, than Nixon did. Certainly, Rockefeller I think would have been. Um, a pretty appealing candidate to a lot of people who ended up voting for for Humphrey, um, and who who voted for Humphrey or voted for George Wallace because they didn't trust uh, Richard Nixon. They might have trusted Nelson Rockefeller. So he was very effective at sort of playing both sides, straddling the fence and playing both sides. Um, and and to that point, I think it shows that Nixon was a great politician, uh, underappreciated as a really effective politician. Um, to come back from where he had been, not just losing in '60. But losing the California governor's race in '62 with the famous line about, you know, if Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. Like, and ABC had a documentary, the obituary of Richard Nixon. Obituary of Richard Nixon. Exactly. And people thought he was he was done. Um, and to come back the way he did, it, it's it speaks to a, his discipline as a politician, but also how smart he was as a politician. How serious was Ronald Reagan's campaign in '68? He ran as a favorite son in California, but did he have a full throttled effort? No, not really. I think had he had a full thought of it, it might have been more effective. But I think and he later said this, that he didn't feel he was ready to be president in 68. He'd only been governor of California for two years. It was a bit early for him. Um, the funny thing I found about about Reagan is that he, he certainly made an effort at the convention to be the nominee. But in his memoirs, he wrote that it, it basically didn't happen. He said that he hadn't actually been the nominee and he hadn't made an effort to be president in 68, which is completely untrue. So I was always struck by that. Um, and I think he sort of had convinced himself that it was a failed effort and it wasn't going to work and, and, and sort of moved on from it when he ran for president again in 76 and then 1980. Um, I think a lot of Republicans would have loved having Reagan as the nominee. I think they saw him as how they would eventually see him, which is sort of the conservative, you know, white knight in shining armor, the, the, the sort of the Goldwater-like figure, but who wasn't as... as um, as repellent as Goldwater was to so many voters. Spiro T. Agnew, the vice presidential yes. nominee. Now, Richard Nixon had been vice president. Uh, he knew what the job was like. Did he take that into account when he selected the no. governor of Maryland? <laughs> no. He took into account the fact that Spiro Agnew was the kind of person, I think, who would appeal to to white voters. 
Um, Agnew had sort of made, he was a rather unremarkable politician who had become, by sort of fluke, became governor of Maryland. And um, as governor, he was not terribly effective. But there, after the, the, the King riots in, that happened in, in April of 68, um, which were particularly bad in Baltimore, he went on TV and basically attacked civil rights leaders, attacked the, the, not I mean, basically blamed them for the violence, which Nixon thought was great. Nixon thought was very effective. Nixon thought would play well with white voters, which it did. Um, and to that, stent, to, that, to that sense, Agnew would be sort of an effective tool, an effective way to sort of gin up that kind of the sort of anti-racial, the sort of racist attitudes among some white voters. It was also true that Agnew wouldn't overshadow him. And I think uh, that was a big concern for Nixon as well. He wanted somebody who would be in the shadows. And that ended up being what Agnew did. And even though he, he made um, uh, gaffe after gaffe on the campaign trail, it, it, didn't, it didn't really hurt all that much in the sense that a lot of the gaffes were racially uh, tinged. I think Nixon thought that was a positive, something that would actually, uh, again, help his support among, among sort of racially insensitive voters, if you will. And he was a Rockefeller person initially. That's the interesting thing. He was a big Rockefeller supporter. And when Rockefeller had first dropped out of the race in March of 68, Agnew was not, had not been told in advance and was humiliated by it and, and didn't really forgive Rockefeller for it. Um, and ended up, uh, again, that was, was in March 68. And then in April, you have the, the King riots and his response to it. And that sort of takes Agnew from being perceived as being a, ra- a racial moderate to being seen as more of a, a, a antagonistic person on race. And it's funny, the, the way he won initially was that Democrats in Maryland had nominated for governor an incredibly racist candidate, a Wallace supporter, actually. And so because of that, a lot of black voters actually supported Agnew. And he was seen because of who he ran against as somewhat of a racial moderate. And that ended up being, I think he sort of went with that a little bit. And that was probably the reason why I think he supported, he supported Rockefeller. But you have to remember, it's also worth keeping in mind that in 68, a lot of people thought that Nixon couldn't win. You know, he'd lost in 60. He was not that terribly popular. A lot of people within the party thought that Rockefeller would be a more effective general election candidate, which I think is probably true. And we talked about Donald Trump briefly. As you look at the 68 campaign, did Donald Trump, in some respects, take a page out of Richard Nixon's playbook? I mean, I actually think it's it's more a page out of George Wallace's playbook, but certainly the, the playing on racial fears, uh, which Nixon did in a more subtle way, Wallace did in a more open and visceral way, uh, I think is is certainly a crucial part of what Trump did in 2016 and why he won. Um, I think, but beyond that, you know, one of the things that comes out of 68 is this, is this extraordinary racial division in American politics. You know, it's 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 hard to imagine this now, but Nixon in 60 wins about 30 percent, 35 percent, I think, of the of the white vo- of the black vote. Um, in 1960, when he was for president, uh, a lot of blacks still voted for Republican candidates in part because of the um, the party of, being the party of Lincoln. Uh, by '64, with Goldwater's post-civil rights uh, legislation, it's down to less than 10 percent. And Nixon, I think, about got about eight or nine percent of the black vote. And Nixon made this calculation that you know, not not getting support of black voters was actually a addition by subtraction. That he could he could basically turn the Republican Party into a party of white America, and that ended up happening. Uh, by and large, black voters from 68 on voted overwhelmingly for Democrats, and white voters voted you know, for generally for Republicans. And that divide has only gotten you know, more, more sharp, I suppose you'd say, sharper in American politics since then. And I, you know, I think that, that what's happened is that the parties are now seen today implicitly 
as the Republicans, the party of white America, and the Democrats, the party of sort of multicultural America. Uh, people don't even have to acknowledge it. I think it's just how the parties are seen. And so I think for Trump, you know, he and any Republican candidate, they're going to benefit from that. They're going to benefit from the fact that white Americans just view Republicans as the party that looks out for their interests. Um, I think what made Trump different, and one of the reasons why I think he was effective, unfortunately, is that he he more viscerally played on racial fears. And so I think for a lot of more race, more racist voters who may have been turned off by the racial liberalism, someone like John McCain and Mitt Romney, looked at Trump and said, he's our guy. Um, and I'm struck by, looking back at 2016, the number of white voters in places like Florida and Pennsylvania who hadn't voted in 20, 2012 or 2008 who came out for Trump. And I, I think that a lot of that has to do with how much he played on racial fears. Um, so I think he benefited in some respects from this sort of implicit division, racial division among parties. But I think he also goosed that more by being explicit about his racism. And your book on 1968 weaves all of this together. Final question for you. What surprised you the most in researching it? Oh, that's a great question. Um, God, so much. <laughs> I mean, I think that when I started working on the book, I knew this was a pivotal moment in American politics. I don't think I fully appreciated how pivotal it was. I don't think I understood, you know, that this was, people think of this as this dividing line for Democratic Party, which it certainly was, but it was also a dividing line for the Republican Party. It became much more conservative, much, much more, um, uh, I don't want to say racist, but certainly much more inclined to play on racial fears than they had before. Um, I think the, I was surprised looking at some of the candidates. I, I had, a, I came away from it with a much sort of more cynical view of Robert Kennedy, um, who I, I respected, but I think, you know, the, he was much more politician and and less of the myth that people see him as. Uh, Gene McCarthy, a person I didn't know a lot about before working on the book, I came to see him as sort of the heroic figure um, in it. But, you know, the thing that also struck me is that, and this is sort of a sad part about it, you had nine candidates running, all of whom were among the most important political figures of the late 20th century. Uh, I mean, not just late, of, of basically from the second half of the 20th century. And very few of them cover themselves in glory in this campaign. Uh, you know, I think... Um, People like Rockefeller, who I think is a pretty admirable figure, um, he didn't have the courage of his conviction, I think, to challenge Nixon the way that he probably should have. Um, I look at someone like Johnson, who, for all of his great work on civil rights, you know, was such a disaster in Vietnam and did so much to hurt Humphrey politically. I look at someone like George Wallace, who just, you know, until Trump, the most racist candidate ever had in American politics. I look at someone like Nixon, who was so cynical the way he ran the campaign, and someone like Humphrey, who who I think was, again, another admirable figure who um, who didn't have the courage of his convictions, and, and I think his cowardice, cowardice we talked about earlier, I think undermined him. It's why, it's why McCarthy, of all pe- people in the campaign, is the one figure who I sort of end up respecting, even though, even though McCarthy was, by all accounts, aloof, not a very pleasant guy, not a very nice person, but you know, he, he stood up and he challenged Johnson in a way that nobody else did. And, and I, to, earned a lot of my respect when I was working on the book to see what he had done. Um, and I think I think the, the thing also is that you sort of realize that these are you sort of we think of politicians, uh, we put them often on a pedestal. And I think working on the book, you sort of see them as really flawed, complex figures and flawed in a way I don't think I totally understood or appreciated. Um, and that even the ones you think are somewhat heroic, um, someone like Bobby Kennedy, you know, had his moments of of you know, disfavor, th- things that that really I think are discredited to him. Um, Someone like Jim McCarthy, I look at some heroic figure, had lots of things he did in the campaigns, which laid in the campaign that that were not great, and I think undermined his, his political movement that he that he helped birth. So I guess in that sense, it's it just makes me sort of think of politics in a more complex and nuanced way than I guess I had before, um, which is ironic because you know the book came out around in 2016. 
at a time when the least nuanced, least complex political figure in my lifetime or any of our lifetimes ended up coming on the, on the political stage. And it's unfortunate because I think that we have, there's interesting people running for office. They, again, they're flawed. They have their, their positives and their negatives. And, and yet we have somebody now who I think is defined almost exclusively by his negatives and not his positives, uh, which of which there are few and far between. So I guess that's, that's the best I can come up with as far as uh, surprising me. But it was, it was a fun experience to write this book. And it was, it was, a, a, it was a wonderful opportunity to sort of look back at this, this pivotal historical moment. And we appreciate your time, your insights. Michael Cohen, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to C-SPAN's The Weekly. We hope you subscribe to this podcast and find our other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts.